Welcome to Indigenous Action, where we dig deep into critical issues impacting our communities throughout occupied America, or what we call Turtle Island. This is an autonomous, anti-colonial broadcast with unapologetic and claws-out analysis towards total liberation. So take your seat by this fire and may the bridges we burn together light our way. Yate, this is Klee. I am your host today. We will be talking about colonial logics and rethinking resistance to resource extraction. One of our guests, Bearcat, is uh, right at the front lines of the Line 3 resistance and was just there. We'll be talking about that for the uh, treaty people gathering. Our other guests, Amra and Etsy, are also long-term frontline organizers and will be sharing their experiences as well. Uh, and stay tuned for shout outs and call outs at the end. Um, before we get into it, we'll be sharing a promo from the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network, of which we are part of, and then we will get into the show with our guests introducing themselves. It's going down, and you're invited for what they're selling. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's going down, and you're invited for what they're selling. We ain't buying. There is no running, there is no hiding, there's only fighting or dying. It's Going Down is a digital community center from anarchist, anti-fascist, autonomous, anti-capitalist, and anti-colonial movements. Our mission is to provide an autonomous and resilient platform to publicize and promote revolutionary theory and action. Go to itsgoingdown.org for daily updates. Check out our online store for ways to donate and rate and follow us on iTunes if you like this podcast. Kumotaka, Oki, Nixokwax, hello, friends and relatives. I'm Etsy. Hi, um, everyone. My name is Amra Salamon, and I am um, an Otham descendant uh, from Yuma, Arizona, from the community from Yuma, and a member of the Otham Anti-Border Collective. Hello, it's Jen Bearcat. I'm calling in today from, actually, I'm from line, coming in from line three, fresh off camp. I still have my camp ticks on me. So I just like to say hello and give a quick report back for all of our listeners. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Camp ticks. What do you mean by camp, camp ticks? ticks? I, oh, I love- man. Ticks. <laughs> are those like? They don't tell you. Are those are those blood are those blood sucking white savior yes. allies? Is that what you, the new name for them is? Grounded, <laughs> overgrown, they're swarming. <laughs> I saw a whole bunch of them when I went to Standing Rock. I saw a whole bunch of them at Sacred Stone Camp. Those camp ticks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can't get rid of them. I like the new name. It's better than accomplices. The shade is real. Uh, 
Um, on that note, uh, so you're you're up there on the front line, Bearcat, and um, we wanted to start the show off today by talking about the um, the Treaty People Gathering, which is uh, recently held, and it sounds like it's being protracted uh, in so-called Minnesota. The gathering was called and enforced by nearly uh, every indigenous environmental nonprofit group, particularly uh, Indigenous Environmental Network and Honor the Earth, with groups like 350.org, like these major big green um, and social justice organizations like Code Pink uh, as part of that effort. Um, and the rerouting of Enbridge's Line 3 tar sands pipeline is being resisted there uh, by a range of different camps. And that's been going on for some time the past couple of years or, or potentially longer. Um, and the most spotlighted one uh, is led by the GNU Collective, we understand, uh, and another autonomous camp called Megizi, which I'm not sure how active they are these days, but I know some of the organizers and the people who are part of that are still obviously very much in, in involved in the fight. Um, so Bearcat, you were just on the ground there. Can you talk about what you experienced? Um, a whole lot of fuckery, Clee. Oh, well, um, what do you mean by that? <laughs> we're overrun by NGOs this weekend. <laughs> um, yeah, basically, uh, there was a call to action by um, various orgs. Um, to me, it seemed like um, they kind of just invaded the space almost. Um, they, they decided to throw an action. Um, a majority of them are not from or active in this territory. Um, they did it in collusion, I guess, or, or I'm, I don't really actually even know how it came about. About too much, but it kind of felt like um, people almost felt um, pressed into um, hosting, which is never a, a good feeling to um, to come into a space with, you know. But um, you know, what are you going to do? Thousands of people are coming into your territory. You're going to have to make it work. Um, and some, I, some I do believe uh, were signed on to to uh, co-host kind of thing. Um, yeah, it was just a bunch of people that convened for the weekend to um, come make some noise, I guess, um, try to get Biden's attention, which I'm not too sure uh, how far along that tactic went. Um, and yeah, they came out to get some ticks, too. Um, and, and speaking of the ticks, uh, mm -hmm. the the camp had an interesting um, proposition uh, in its outreach, and that was sort of rebranding re settler or identifying settler colonizers as treaty people. Um, mm -hmm. What was the effect of that? How did that work out, or how is that working out there? Um, I, I saw a big divide actually between the existing camps that would be um, GNU, McGeezy, and then also there's Red Lake Treaty Camp that's further north a couple of hours but um there was definitely kind of there was no way that the area the space could have handled that many campers additional campers so there was kind of like an overflow camp kind of thing about an hour and a half away from the, the main camps and um that's kind of where they called it bliss camp bliss and uh, it was i it was sacred stony um for for lack of better terms for people who um, and, don't understand or don't know what the oh, okay. dynamics at Sacred Stone are, can you sort of explain what you mean by that? Yes. Very ally, um, co-opted, uh, playing xylophones on the main stage and trying to throat sing and that kind of shit. Like, 
it was very, um, most people avoided that area, but there were a lot of actual, um, a really solid um, frontliners that actually did go to that camp. So um, I would be interested to hear their perspective on um, how they managed through the weekend, but everyone was kind of just uh, flying by, flying by, trying to get through the weekend. Yeah, I guess my question is more in relation to like this idea of identifying, you know, settler colonizers as treaty people. It seems like there's a strategy there that's mm-hmm. one is PR and one another one potentially legal. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it made me feel a little uncomfortable regarding that. And I think the website, the language that they use is basically saying that, you know, all these people who are descendants of colonizers are mm-hmm. people who are, we are we are still in treaty with. And, you know, they yeah. are then the idea is to honor those and uphold and enforce those treaties through these actions, which, you know, again, to me is problematic because I don't know if most people have read the actual treaties that they want to honor, but a lot of them have compulsory education as part of a component, which is forced assimilation yeah. and birthed the, the, or laid the ground for boarding schools that were, you know, very much dealing with the brutal legacy of today. So it's like, you know, calling white people treaty people, that changes a power relationship to some degree, but it assumes one that we can confer that to anybody. And what is, is that a casual relationship or is it something deeper is, you know, it seems to be that the urge is there, the sentiment to politicize the relationship and identity, but on many levels, it just seems to assume this legitimacy of the settler role and relationship to these nonprofit organizations or non-governmental organizations, which is really odd to me. I don't know. You're absolutely correct about that. I kept an eye out for that this weekend. I went into it this weekend. I'm kind of trying to view it and see if that was a dynamic that was in play. And it was heavily, heavily um, played upon. And not only, I wasn't as worried about it by the whites and allies um, as I was about our native people that went there still trying to talk about honor the treaties on the treaties. You know what? Treaties were not a good deal the first time around. <laughs> That's why our people had to be forced into signing those. You know, it's like, why, why try to um, get back just a little bit of what we had when all this shit is ours? So I, I found that problematic and I find the, um, the, the urge to lean into that is extremely, um, like, like you're saying, we need to look a little bit further down the road and there's going to, there could be uh, other implications in regards to that. And we need to be very careful about that. And uh, I hope that people understand that that is not a catch-all term and that is not something that sh- we should be throwing around and it's not a position of power. So, um, yeah, it's worrisome. Yeah, um, I, I completely agree with uh, with Bearcat here that... Um, you know, the the treaties were often things that people, you know, as she mentioned, were forced into negotiating in conditions of um, starvation, uh, genocide, um, warfare, and that they were, you know, th- there's so many problems with them, we know, in terms of how they were interpreted differently by different sides, you know, that they were falsified to the people in terms of what they thought they were agreeing to or giving up or getting in return. And so it's it's like asking for the bare minimum, right? Like you have all this potential power as, you know, original peoples, as our communities that we could have if we formed autonomously together and we're like, no, you know, and really delved into our capacity for resistance and refusal, but instead to, you know, accept and focus our demand on 
these incredibly disempowering concessions as like the thing that we want aspirationally is is really sad, you know, and it undercuts a lot of uh, the other potential things that we could ask for. But it also reinforces ideas, for example, that um, reservation boundaries are the only territory that, um, you know, indigenous people could have, you know, protection over or relationship with, um, you know, excludes us from potential actions on non-reservation lands, you know, to protect those sites. Um, it's, it's, it's something that just limits our capacity in so many ways. And, and, you know, in some ways I understand like the short-term sightedness of using it as a tool, but I think it's a situation where, um, you know, what we ask for in the present undermines our potential for something greater in the future. So I think that there's just other ways we can say no to this pipeline or no to desecration of land that don't reinforce, um, colonial logics and colonial legal frameworks that have overall been shitty to people. I, yeah, I, I 100% agree. I think that it's, it's really harmful or it has been harmful to us and our movements. Um, when we have had to be forced to adopt proprietary sentiments, um, in order to negotiate with state terrorism, I think that I, I yeah, I just one hundred percent agree with uh, what Amra is saying about um, you know what what can we do to undermine and delegitimize these kinds of powers that often regulate our resistance to them, and it's the same. Obviously, we have the same critiques of the NGOs, the nonprofits, because of that, because they are consistently regulating our movements and they are colluding with a lot of state and corporate interests and power. And not everyone knows that corporations were created to fund colonization, but I think it's it's really important that we be careful, be very, very careful and like how, how we're shaping and moving um, uh, towards, towards our future goals because yeah, yeah. I just really, that really hit it on the head in terms of the concessions that kind of uh, pacify uh, and have pacified and then prolong the the powers, the coercive powers that we're fighting against. Yeah, carefulness and also fierce intentionality, I think, is Truly. key. And to me, it's like, what a bloated political identity, like the treaty people. It just seems really like a, a weird identifier that people could embrace in, you know, potentially disturbing ways and wield as a leverage. And that I don't, I don't know if it's been fully thought through, but that's concerning. Um, in terms of resisting climate change and resource colonialism, uh, we see a similar pattern of this recent camp and some of the stuff that you mentioned, Bearcat, that happened at Standing Rock, like Sacred Stony kind of dynamics, but also other dynamics in relation to the roles of nonprofit organizations, you know, where these indigenous nonprofits specifically utilize, you know, 
powerful decolonial language, yet their main stated goal for this gathering was to demand specifically that Biden, the president of the so-called United States, end the pipeline uh, development. So how can we, and this is for the whole group, be more effective in our strategies and actions to address these threats of resource colonial violence? And, you know, this is something that you can speak to on the front lines at the border um, from the anti-border um, collective uh, position, or we can speak, I guess, you know, in our experiences in a range of different frontline struggles. Um, I think that by the time it gets to the point where we're, uh, you know, throwing bodies on pipelines that are literally trying to be put into the ground, um, we're a little bit behind behind the curve right there. Not a little bit, we're a lot behind the curve. And I think it's going to have to come into, we need to take a lot of this energy too and put it towards our tribal councils and abolish these tribal councils because like how, what we're seeing up with the Thacker Pass issue, our council heard about it, you know, last year or, you know, they were consulted about it and the, it never trickled down to the people. It never got past their, the board. And so it was very hard for us to understand that there was anything even going on. Can you explain just real quick what the Thacker Pass mm-hmm. issue is? Uh, Thacker Pass is um, more greenwashing, I guess uh, we can call it. Um, it's They're attempting to put in a lithium mine in our sacred spaces in northern Nevada between McDermott Indian Reservation and Doug Valley Indian Reservation. And it's a very sacred space for um, both of our tribes. Well, there's three tribes that traditionally use that area, and it's going to basically Tesla. Tesla... Um, I don't know if you guys remember it back a couple of years back, New Mexico and Nevada had a bidding war about where Tesla was going to be put or where they were going to start making cars. And um, Nevada won out because apparently they didn't want to have to transport lithium across state lines and it's easier to transport within state. And so having Thacker Pass where there is, it's one of the largest loads of lithium in, I I've heard the world, but it could that could just be the country. I'm not sure. Um, that's known, and it is conveniently located for them in Nevada. So they that's why they um, Nevada won the bid for Tesla to uh, come there to start making their cars. And uh, that's a difficult thing for people to understand because now we're we're having to start thinking in the future because when we say no more oil. And people are going to um, conveniently say, well, what then? And then people conveniently also say, well, we're going green. Okay, well, that's we can't just go green. We have to cut back. We have to really rethink and reorganize our entire life structure because it's not working. And that's that's what it's going to come down to, basically. Yeah, just to jump on, on what Bearcat was just sharing. Um, so electronic vehicles like the Tesla cars uh, run on lithium ion batteries, as do our computers, cell phones, a lot of technology. And um, lithium is, you know, when, when you think about how um, capitalists and extractionists are planning their products for the future and how they develop their large scale infrastructure projects, they're trying to move from, you know, fossil fuels like oil and petroleum because they know that that's running out and they're trying to move to some other technology and we've seen a lot of uh, mapping from the companies and from you know their own kind of you know product imagination processes that they do that um lithium is just a a momentary blip in this long-term trajectory they have towards a different technology. So they're looking at hydrogen as probably the technology that they will move to after oil. And lithium is just going to be a temporary moment 
in this move towards from oil to hydrogen, for example, as a possible technology. Um, that's still an extractive technology that funds, you know, the current uh, capitalist extractive lifestyle. And so what they want to do is move from, you know, the massive desecration of, of sacred lands that oil produces um, to desecrating sacred lands for lithium and then desecrating sacred lands for some other product down the line. And so as long as the logic is desecration and extraction, that's what we're going to get. Whether it doesn't matter what mineral we're talking about, as long as people are, you know, capitalists and extractionists and colonists are planning their society based on extraction as its foundation, that's what we're going to get. And so we need to really combat that logic um, because it's just going to, the problem's just going to be displaced to another region. You know, today it's the regions who are fighting fossil fuel extraction. Tomorrow, even right now, it's the regions that are fighting lithium extraction. And after that, it's going to be another region fighting another kind of extraction. So the problem is extraction. And that's what we really need to focus on. And that's going to require colonists to stop acting like colonizers and people to stop consuming um, through this capitalist lifestyle at the rate that they are. Right. There are also, like you said, in terms of other regions where indigenous people are fighting against not just extraction, but the, the, the colonization of their lands um, already. Um, palm, palm trees and palm oil is a huge alternative to oils and gasoline that have um, kind of destroyed certain African villages. Um, also in the Amazon, um, certain spaces are are taken over and uh kind of kind of marked for prime spaces to to do this kind of greenwashed farming um and people have have been fighting for fighting against these industries for for quite a while and have at the expense of their life people are losing their lives in other countries um for in, in these fights uh, against resource extraction and um, green capitalism and greenwashing. So, yes, 1000%. Uh, we have to really reevaluate our life ways and to some people, to some indigenous peoples, uh, protect uh, those, those life ways. Because uh, not, you know, not all colonized peoples have access to those I guess anti-capitalist and anti-extraction ways of knowing and being it, it is going to take you know a lot of a lot of political education on the part of the people who are fighting against these systems um, in order to to get people out of using these kinds of these logics to perpetuate more harm and, um, and violence. And I think at, also at the center of this conversation as well, what I, I like to drive home is the complete abolition of the police as well, because the police are always at the center of, of, 
being the kind of guard dogs for the ruling class or these people who are developing um, and colonizing our land. So, uh, of course, that is related to insurrectionary mutual aid and related to abolitionist practices and related to transformative justice practices that can make and render the state um, irrelevant. I love what you just said, because, like, I think... On the one hand, like, there is a total connection between, like, the palm oil plantation, the ethanol plantation, like, plantation as a logic of supplement for mm -hmm. the mineral extraction. And, you know, plantations and mineral extraction have always existed historically together as, you know, the forces desecrating our lands and enslaving our peoples and causing major havoc. So I think that there's definitely a connection there. And I love that you brought that up. Another thing that I really like about what you were just saying was like identifying like, you know, where, where are the logics of the problem and how can we actually do something different? So like looking at police as like, you know, this racist you know, state violence steeped in, you know, the history of slavery and colonization that's literally killing people and then transformative justice as like our building of our autonomous like strategy beyond it, right? And and um, I think that's like the question that I come back to with what Bearcat was just saying too about like, okay, how can we identify like the groups that are actually facilitating the problem, right? Like if tribal councils are facilitating the problem, then we need to address that. If police are facilitating the problem, then we need to address that. Um, I think also like how the environmental movement is facilitating these problems <laughs> is something that we haven't really tackled yet. Um, you know, because right. who is creating the demand for these electronic vehicles for the extraction of lithium? It's environmentalists, right? They are actually like the public, you know, um, ad agencies out there creating a demand for a product where there isn't a demand. You know, they're the ones asking for Green New Deal. They're the ones asking for, you know, all of this extraction to, you know, facilitate itself and for these new products, just as they're, you know, a lot of folks are, you know, converting to vegetarianism. And then what do you do? They go buy a bunch of food that's made from palm oil and, and you know, corn. <laughs> um, so like they're, you know, in some ways, like, you know, we need to really tackle these entities that are actually like, cre you know, disguising themselves as a solution, but are really facilitating the problem. And like, I, I mean, I, of course, I can understand the practical immediate term demand of, you know, okay, here's a decision maker, an authority figure who can end this pipeline development. But, you know, I think when we are talking the language of treaty and which evokes obviously sovereignty, we're talking the language of decolonization, it is irresponsible for us to um, then lock our analysis and our actions solely into the, those models and those demands, like asserting our autonomy, asserting our sovereignty over these areas. And, and treaties don't didn't just exist in paper, they existed with Mother Nature and the Earth in covenants that we have in a different way of asserting and relating to power. Um, and so to me, these are the questions that we're missing. Uh, we're missing those spiritual dimensions of what this struggle is about. Because, you know, something that I've articulated for a, a long time is that global warming is a direct consequence of the war against Mother Earth. And that to fully stop these these mines, these power plants, these dams, these pipelines, we have to stop the political machinery and systems that generate them. It's about intervention, not triage and 
um, band-aids because the next pipeline is going to pop up somewhere else. You know, we have to intervene in the root causes of these issues. And that's why when we look at these strategies, I think it's really concerning. Um, You know, the the, the Biden, well, actually we can, I can step back to a local um, example here. The Navajo Nation was aggressively trying to save the Navajo Generating Station, which is located near so-called Page in um, northern Arizona. And it was a um, a coal-fired power plant that was extraordinarily polluting. And it was sole purpose was designed to pump water, to provide electricity to pump water from the Colorado River to sustain Phoenix and Tucson. Um, and so that is... It, Clearly, and the coal came specifically from Black Mesa, from my family's area where forced relocation um, has occurred because of the, this geopolitical resource colonial violence. And so um, there's direct, clear um, uh, resource colonial Im- impact. The Navajo Nation, of course, was invested in it. They wanted to save this power plant. The nonprofit celebrated its closure. And, and just this past summer, it was demolished. It was blown up, which was beautiful. It was a beautiful sight to see in slow motion too, right? The imagery of this like specter of a toxic power plant finally coming down. But what was obscured in the dust and the smoke from that blast and from bringing that place down is, is that the the um, Salt River Project, which was the entity behind it, um, wanted to get out of business. They They were done with coal because natural gas is more viable. So the whole push opened up, you know, this, they were, they were dumping this industry on the Navajo Nation's hand who wanted to save it because of the jobs. That was it. And the resources that it provided on a minimal level on a local um, basis, they were afraid of that change. And so to me, that's a really clear sort of like example of these nonprofits and even our own Diné nonprofits were celebrating um, the, the, the uh, destruction of NGS, which is you know, something we should celebrate, but not looking at this bigger picture of this is just these corporations playing a different game. And they don't, they don't give a shit about what's going to be happening um, with the aftermath of, you know, that power plant to begin with, because they had already moved on into natural gas. And so under the Biden administration with his transportation infrastructure plan, they're proposing to spend one point or no, $174 billion dollars um, on electric vehicles. And so that whole push is specifically looking at what the viable sources of lithium are internationally and domestically. And so that's the big charge that we're facing. And, you know, these, the, the, if, if the climate justice movement can't understand, and this is something, this is not a new analysis. People have been challenging the green economy and green capitalism and greenwashing uh, for generations, but now we are seeing it unfold in real time with, you know, the, the military industrial complex being green as a sort of matter of, you know, uh, climate justice survival, like to maintain imperialist domination. You know, they're one of the biggest purchasers of green technologies, uh, prisons being green. Like this is the world that uh, a lot of these NGOs and nonprofit environmental groups are ushering in with things like the Green New Deal and even the Red Nation's Red New Deal, even though they use the language of decolonization and anti-capitalism, we see really astroturfing, which is a term that has been applied to a range of organizations that aren't acting like they're or presenting as grassroots mobilizations who have been doing long-term frontline work, but actually are just these academic 
armchair activists who've just shown up and can articulate uh, the issues by co-opting a range of different pre-existing movements and putting them into an analysis when they actually haven't been doing any of the work. So, you know, the, the, the Red New Deal has some great language and great intention, but when it comes down to it, the concern is behind that is the actual agenda of revolutionary socialism that the Red Nation is proposing, which really is highly manipulative and presenting something that is very problematic for indigenous people when it comes down to the sort of missionized leftist politics that are a colonial rooted system that isn't our way, you know, and we can get into this maybe in another show regarding um, proletarianization, the dictatorship of the proletarian uh, industrialization that sort of is demanded uh, through this state-based revolutionary tactic. But certainly that's another show. So really what it gets down to here is why is it our responsibility as indigenous people to sustain unsustainable ways of life? And how can we implicate deeper settler colonial violence, resource colonialism, and confront, challenge, intervene, disrupt these unsustainable ways of life so we can build more meaningfully for coming generations? So I want to turn the question a bit more to the tactics uh, that we're talking about regarding the treaty people gathering. The the gatherings language, and I think this is just, you know, maybe less of a profound issue to address, but one that I think is relevant in relation to frontline tactics and diversity of tactics. Um, but the language is heavily based around nonviolence. Um, and it was clear from what we saw uh, that it utilized direct action or nonviolent direct action, NVDA, as a sort of theatrical lobbying tactics. Uh, I'm curious as to what your thoughts are, though, because I did see some barricades go up. I saw some really interesting creative actions. Like, are there a, were there autonomous actions that stepped outside of those prescribed uh, nonviolent restrictions? There were, and it was an actually... Um pretty interesting thing to watch play out because the people that were taking the autonomous direct action were actually the elders from the area and a majority of them being white and I was speaking to someone from the area um, yesterday actually and uh, I I noted that and they said that um, well back in the 90s and in the early 2000s they had an oil leak online three here and uh, we, were, we were discussing just the age difference, age groups, and a lot of the younger people and stuff out on the line, you know, they were born in the 2000s, and a lot of them might not me- remember the actual um, destruction that was caused by these leaks. Um, but the older people, they act, they actually lived through that, and so it's kind of a way for them to correct themselves because, you know, they didn't listen the first time around, and they let the pipeline, or they didn't do anything about the pipeline, so now they're coming back around, and now they're saying, okay, no, no, we really do need to stand up. We do, it's time. Um, we cannot afford to have another leak in the area because they lived through the destruction of what um, the past leaks have caused. And so I thought that was an interesting dynamic, um, not to give too much credit, though. But, it, you know, it's a give and a take. Um, as far as autonomous, we, uh, you know, uh, let's see how to break this down. During debriefings, we, we, there, were, there were notes taken about um, 
just learning how to manage that, learning how to manage um, the ways that it was beneficial tactically and the ways that it was um, we do need to step up and um, kind of somebody needs to be um, the the voice, not the voice or the director, but, you know, to make direct actions go. Sometimes you do need somebody that's not afraid to pull a plug, to uh, pull a plug or to pull a trigger, you know. So these are different things that we have um, been discussing and working through and, you know, give or take, it's how it goes. Yeah, and I guess maybe this just speaks to a broader, like, tension that we've seen, especially, like, in the midst of the George Floyd rebellions, Black Lives Matters uprisings, and movement policing. So it's like setting the stage for an action by policing the movement before it begins, you know, is that concern. So we saw tensions in Standing Rock, for example, between um, the camps and Red Warrior Camp. Red Warrior being that militant sort of direct action response that dug in. And so, you know, I think what I'm sort of trying to get at, I guess, and get out of is this is like, you know, what ways are folks um, finding creative ways to intervene, to disrupt, to engage beyond those confines? Because, you know, we see the that these prescriptions aren't working. They have a limited use. And in some, to some degree, I'm also really critical of them in, in the context of a pandemic. It's like, you know, mm-hmm. thing, things are not safe. Even if you're vaccinated, our communities are not safe. And indigenous communities are more vulnerable. Um, that's the reality that we face. And so asking people to go to a massive camp and get locked up and go through the carceral state in a time we're still facing the serious threat of this global pandemic you know, I, I, I'm just concerned with that tactic, especially when it just result amounts to, you know, putting more, you know, scale, turning up the knob of pressure on the Biden administration. And that's concerning to me. Yeah, that, that, that tactic, I don't feel the juice is, the juice is worth the squeeze there. Um, totally agree with you about that. Um, <laughs> the one thing that I did know that was different tactically, um, than in the Southwest, like the Southwest, our people are very docile and they're very, um, you know, that's a very correct. And this is something I did not expect. (laughs) Well, we're not, our people are, but you know, the people. (laughs) Yeah. Good point. Good point. But, um, a lot of people actually that came out to the action were coming from Minneapolis and those greater, uh, the Twin Cities areas. And they have been through a lot this summer (laughs) and and the whole past year. And they really, uh, they were really ready to get down. So that was, uh, you know, that was comforting <laughs> to see people that were just ready to fucking, you know, get busy. And, and you don't see that a lot in a lot of places. So I thought that was uh, something really unique to, to know about the area. Right. One thing I was um, talking about in another time, maybe with Klee, uh, was that even though some nonprofits might call for specific actions or even protest that still is that they still don't really have complete and utter control over how the people respond to violence real time. Uh, So Minneapolis is a great example of people going out to protest the death of George Floyd and and then burning, you know, the precinct down when 
you know, yeah, when when they were protecting the the homes of these police officers who were responsible, same thing in different areas throughout the country where police would perpetuate violence on people who were, for all intents and purposes, peaceful from jump, and then those people took it out on property in the surrounding area, no matter what the area, um, well, in, in, in more uh, rich or wealthy middle-class uh, areas that... Yeah, so I think that, um, yeah, there, there's really... There, there's, a, there's a space for people to, to carve out how they want to opt in and, you know, provide their own tactics. I think it's really important to work with the people of the land, the people who belong to the land, obviously. But, you know, this whole conversation is... I think it's it's about radical direct action, mutual aid, and all that. But I think some of our own people who are of these lands aren't really there. And so, like, in cases of, of Standing Rock or or other popular land defense efforts, we always seem to be in tension with each other ideologically. So how, yeah, how are we to, how, how are we to work together to combat that? Because, you know, we talk about people try, are trying to hold Biden accountable and it's like, no, I want to, I want, I'm hoping that people are looking at it from, a non um, having imperialist amnesia or like having looking at it from a liberal standpoint that doesn't take into account generations and hundreds of years of colonization and industry and say, fuck you to not only the Biden administration, but the colonizers legitimacy in total. Why are, why are we, continuing to you know reify the these spaces yeah spaces of inherent white supremacy patriarchy i i just yeah i'm i'm sick of saying the same things over and over cuz it, it it's you know but but i i think i don't i don't know what what's got to be said or what's got to be done for people to acknowledge that this is coercive power. And I think what we, the interesting thing, the interesting place that indigenous people of these lands are going through compared to what indigenous people in say Palestine are going through is we can let them know. Don't, yeah, don't, don't form a state. Also, fuck whatever treaties they try to impose on you, it's not worth it in the end because it actually carves out space for the detriment of our future. Because now we're looking at a future with no life whatsoever for the purposes and fantasies of cis-hetero white European men. Yeah, 
I mean, treaties have negotiated, been instruments to negotiate away our existence as autonomous people into assimilation to be the civilized, you know, kill the Indian, fulfillment of kill the Indian, save the man, really. The, the last question I had regarding this, and I think we're, we're opening up space for a lot more questions, and these are ongoing questions. And I think, Etsy, your point about one context and appropriate actions being obviously based upon the, the wishes, the desires, and the risk levels of indigenous communities um, we're talking about. But I think we can step back and analyze the strategies, right? We can look back 40 years ago and see what AIM was doing and recognize that those strategies don't apply. And especially the, you know, cis-heteropatriarchy <laughs> is uh, completely unacceptable and still hasn't had, you know, hasn't been, they haven't been accountable to that legacy. We can recognize, and I think this is the powerful moment that we had at Standing Rock and we have at other camps like this, we can be intentional about what we would like to see 40 years from now by engaging in um, the tensions and debates and critiques around these kinds of tactics. And so I think that there's good and meaningful ways to do it. And it's extremely necessary. So many people look at Standing Rock, and I've said this before, I've written about this. They look at Standing Rock and they celebrate, you know, this victory, but it's a, it's a cultural and social victory in terms of movements, but did it stop the pipeline? And so, you know, then it's a strategic failure if it didn't. And so how do we analyze, we actually own that failure and then, analyze that and try to do better. And so I think if they're replicating the same tactics that they used in Standing Rock for line three, what does that say about our strategies that we're not growing? We're just using, and, and to some degree, it, it still seems like, you know, the backseat driver, Bill McKibben back there with 350.org is driving his, you know, is, he's, he's reading the map of where to go with his agenda. And there's just happens to be brown people in the front seat driving, um, which to me isn't where we should be at at all. So the, the question I had um, regarding this was, um, you know, just to, to hear your overall thoughts on the dyna dynamics regarding the management and exploitation that we continue to see by these indigenous nonprofits, particularly with groups that we saw like the Indian Collective, which really hasn't been, we've named them before a little bit in this show, um, but for folks who don't know, they're not a collective. They have an executive director who's, you know, paid over $200,000 a year who also says he's the president and executive director or CEO and executive. I don't know. He has a title that is hierarchical. So, you know, it's misleading to call them a collective, especially when they've received $10 million from just Jeff Bezos with no problems. And, you know, they embrace this sort of um, analysis of um, uh, the de decolonizing that was presented in decolonizing wealth. This book that really, I mean, I, I, I almost throw up in my mouth when I say the name decolonizing wealth, wealth, this book, but yeah, um, I think Amory, you just messaged that they're a foundation, right? And then we can we can sort of identify that. But overall, to me, this is a dynamic in management and exploitation of indigenous nonprofits that seems to be a big problem. We saw that on a localized level here in the so-called Southwest with a lot of the uh, issues that we were facing, where these orgs were focused on building organizational power, their institutional power through capacity building and all this stuff. And they weren't building the power of the people. And now those orgs don't exist, but the problems are still here, you know, and they made a lot of money. Um, where did that money go? All those resources go. The access to the resource evaporated with them also evaporating. And so these are dynamics that we continue to face. And it's concerning because people are building up their portfolios, their movement personalities and positions and setting the stage 
um, because there's a spotlight, right? Um, so I'm just curious as to y'all's thoughts regarding that and this dynamic, you know, in relation to this recent camp as well. Uh, the it was heavy. Uh, the the same uh, standing rock mentality, I guess we could call it. Um, and Indian Collective was the head of that of that fuckery. Um, and they were extremely problematic on the ground as well as, you know, just it, it entirely, their capacity is just them and honor the earth and, um, IEN, all of them, of course, in cahoots, um, all of them sitting at the same table that none of the rest of us are invited to. <laughs> um, yeah, we, we saw a lot of them. Uh, they came with all their resources, of course, with their big fancy, you know, flags and banners and their ATVs and their, you know, this and that, all their travel stuff. And, um, you know, they kind of set up their, they came and set up their own little camp <laughs> within our camp and uh, did not allow anyone else access to their resources, which would have, you know, made could have made or break that an occupation um, in the moment on the ground there a couple of times and in numerous instances. So, um, you know, I really don't have any, the only way we could really combat that is to push them out by, by, um, by stop fucking with them. Like that's what my biggest ask would be for people out there, just listeners, you know, stop fucking with these people that are putting on this front, you know, that would be like Indian Collective, Seeding Sovereignty, Red Nation, all of these collectives, quote unquote, that are not collectives, that are not for community. They're not community based. They're not accountable to anybody. They come in and they fuck, they fuck up our movement spaces and they, you know, they don't get shit done. And then they put it on social media with cool little captions to you guys. And they act like they're there, they're running shit, and really all they're doing is fucking everything up. So, um, Damn. yeah, call me, call me a <laughs> hater, hashtag hater, but you know what, fuck it. Someone's got to say it, because I don't know why nobody else is, or maybe nobody just has a platform yet, but I'm telling you, um, that would be my biggest ask of people. Um, as far as tactics, you know, tactics are tactics, and I can't really speak on those at the moment. So I'm going to go ahead and pass it off. <laughs> I think like what I see, like also feeling like a hater today is that, <laughs> um, you know, like the foundations of the nonprofits, they just, all they do is act as gatekeepers, right? To media, to, to policymakers, to like those in power, right? They act as like, um, I don't know, almost like the dam on our river of power, right? We could just flood out all of these shenanigans and wash out, you know, like like a river, you know, used to do, just wash the colonial settlement right off the banks, right? Um, and we don't really need to be contained and, and put into this, like, dam structure to really, like, discipline ourselves into, you know, following bureaucratic protocols or following, you know, whatever strings people want to attach to grants or, you know, following the, uh, you know, current event kind of, you know, ideology of mainstream media that doesn't allow us to really get to know communities and build relationships, right? And so... 
I'm kind of in this mood where, like, I just want to blow dance up right now, <laughs> you know, like metaphorically, but also maybe like literally, <laughs> <laughs> you know, where I'm just all of those logics that reproduce the dam, you know, I'm, I'm from a community that was, you know, situated alongside the confluence of two very powerful rivers that were very unpredictable. And everything that I know about our place was taught to me through stories of my grandfather about the rivers and that the rivers were powerful and and it, only an idiot would you know try to contain them or try to um you know build something without thinking about the river as as the main you know entity of the area that it has its own autonomy and its own flow and so i i, I think about those teachings and what can they teach us about how to how to resist, you know, because right now we're responsible to those rivers because they're under such threat because they've been so harmed by extraction, right? That that's what calls me home is that I, I have a responsibility to free my river. Um, so so how can how can we do that also in the way that we do work together? You know, if these organizations just act like another dam, what are they really doing for us? You know. And then do we just need to remove those dams? That's, that's a question that I'm always sort of working through. Mm, that's real. Um, I also want to add to that, that list of problematic popular organizations that are led by figureheads of movements, um, Black Lives Matter, Global Network, um, you know, being somebody that was very much part of the that movement um and then put off by the kind of control and opportunism and you know it seemed like the strategy was never obviously it was never about autonomy maybe they just didn't know about it but i would it would always perplex me why because they had they already had a platform without without needing to appeal to the white masses without util- having to utilize mainstream media news outlets without you know needing these popular magazines and things like that they didn't they could have been autonomous they didn't need to choose the route that they chose and and now they're getting, you know, they're getting a lot of fire for the kind of misdirection. And, you know, it's one thing to, it's one thing to need funding for, you know, specific goals and things like that. But it's just a whole nother to create an entire enterprise. And like you said, foundation an institution off of black death and kind of turning this into a a spectacle that utilizes the killings of, you know, uh, of, of unarmed uh, black and indigenous people within our communities and not thinking about it long term and then doing nothing with the resource the resources that people are have gotten over the years i always tend to say i'm like you know there's 
there's collectives and mom and pop shops and mutual aid efforts that are doing way, way, way more service work with far, far, far less. And it, it really hurts my feelings to know how much, how much they do have and how, how little they're, they're actually giving back to communities. And I think, you know, I didn't know, I didn't know all that much about Indian collective. Like I had, like in some of my, like online, I have shared some of their like fundraisers and I didn't, I didn't know, you know, like some, some people, they, they make it out to seem like they're, you know, a horizontal collective and kind of co-op the language, radical rhetoric and language. But it's, it, it often, unfortunately is a front. And I think, I think now we're in a place where we can at least show people that you don't need a 501c3 organization. You don't need, and I think, I think people who, who are part of nonprofits are really, they're really angry at the criticisms, even though they, they are critical of them of even their the own their own nonprofits that they're working for, I feel like I feel like you know, I, I just wanna say that it's not it's it's not so much like I'm I'm sure it's a lot of work, I'm sure it's a lot of labor, but I think we're we're criticizing where the labor is going and what the labor is doing, what it's expanding, what it colludes with, what it strengthens. Cause we're a lot of we're, we're obviously we're really tired. We're really tired of having to have these consistent conversations and consistently it, it just seems that people are more interested in this kind of professionalization, this kind of marketing ploy for electioneering and, and, you know, yeah, policy is, is one strategy, but it's not the only strategy. And I think that, that's where the issue, that's the issue I have with electioneering and policy and reform and all that is the so much energy and time and money is being poured into those efforts and people who do their own autonomous things are kind of like, we're, we're not, we're not getting the same kinds of accolades tied to institutions, um, you know, we're off, often being mocked. People mock autonomous autonomy and di- direct actions in a sense that they think that we're not doing anything when they all they all they're doing is it seems that they're co-opting, um, you know, the things that we often do to be effective for our people. Um, oh, yeah. It's seeding but, yeah. sovereignty made a post this winter that I wasn't aware about. It brought, was brought to my attention about all the work they were doing to like support unsheltered relatives, like in the community of Flagstaff. And then all these people were asking how they fund them, and they just directed them to their website, with no mention of the on the ground work that. And I guess apparently one of their their staff members was part of an effort, or who had you know been part of the um, uh, one of the outreach or mobile um, uh, patrols, uh, and then took pictures and then shared those and claimed all that work is theirs, which was not a surprise. Um, You know, I really like the imagery of 
um, damming the river power, these, you know, native um, NGOs and uh, nonprofit organizations. I highly recommend to our listeners to check out the book, The Revolution Will Not Be Funded, written by Insight, Women of Color Against Violence. It's um, a phenomenal and powerful and still very relevant um, read. Uh, and the, the, I think critiquing and just abolishing, like the, the, the task then that was asserted with that book was to abolish the nonprofit industrial complex. And I think we still have a lot of work to do. Um, many years ago, I um, was just you know, sensationally stating that the nonprofit industry is probably the greatest threat to our movements for indigenous autonomy and protecting Mother Earth more uh-huh. so than the resource colonizers because they're trying to manage and suppress and um, you know manage movements, which is one of the biggest reasons the nonprofit industry was creating or created for um, and suppress and contain um, the radical urges towards liberation. And so that will always be diffused. You know, the powerful people in our communities who then get absorbed into the nonprofit industry in these roles, these jobs, because fuck, we're all scrambling, right? I mean, you know, like how much, how much time and how much resources do we have, like in the midst of working, having, you know, children, having to go to school, all that surviving under capitalism and, and colonial um, occupation, how much time do we have to volunteer to like take care of these issues? And so um, that is part of the um, the issue when we look at um, this dynamic that I think we have to come to terms with. Because I've, uh, on one hand, I've seen, you know, folks who are unpaid, you know, agitators in their communities and advocates do so much more work than the local paid, you know, staff member of nonprofits that were tasked in their campaigns to do this work and that's a dynamic that persists and the other one one that sticks out the most in my mind is you know at a at a there was a a time when the um water issues on the dene bekeya were really big and um there was a demonstration outside of the tribal council chambers and out the tribal council made a decision that was not surprising against um, the wishes of the people that were mobilized. And so all the nonprofits went across the street and sat around at a table as soon as that decision was made. Meanwhile, all the people who showed up for the call to action formed a big circle in front of the um, council chambers, and they were sharing their grief and sharing what the next steps were. So I, I, I saw the dynamic because I was standing with the people, and I walked over to the table of all these nonprofits, and I was like, what are you doing? Why are you over here trying to make decisions for people who showed up and outside of that, just maintaining your little club that's elitist then, you know, you're perpetuating those dynamics of separation, division and management that we're trying to break down if really we're, we're fighting for the freedom and liberation of our peoples. And so um, that's been persistent, though. That's exactly the way the nonprofit industry uh, works. You know, I, I would recommend if anybody's interested, um, yeah, don't fuck with these groups. But I, I would I would say maybe fuck with the Indian Collective and demand them to release those funds. Like, you know, we can appro- reappropriate or appropriate those funds into frontline um, uh, communities and organizers and organizations that are doing badass work with no conditions, no um, uh, requirements for your name or their name to be attached to it. Just fucking give it to people who are struggling, who are working to um, meaningfully address uh, uh, unsheltered, you know, um, 
uh, issues in our communities, um, working to meaningfully address police violence in our communities and to protect sacred lands and all this stuff. It's just like they're gatekeepers. Just like you said, that's what they're set up to do. Um, and these, these nonprofits are the new forts. Um, they, and they, they missionize this charity work, even in the terms of um, COVID-19. That's part of what their mission is now. Is It's a colonial force that re, is, is embedded and reinforces capitalism. It's what they're designed to do and the mechanisms that they approach with. They're not going to work themselves out of a job. Um, and so, you know, at least that's not what we see today. So I think holding them accountable, challenging them, um, looking into you know, calling for accountability, calling for transparency. And the most important thing I think people can do is support and empower and provide direct resource and material support. Um, and it, it, maybe that even means showing up when those calls to actions are, are made to indigenous frontline um, movements and organizers and interfacing directly with them. Um, to me, that's the most important and critical way that we can build rather than going through and having your support mediated solidarity being mediated by these entities that have a high profile. Um, I think that that's one of the most powerful things that people can do. And we're not hiding. It's easy now, you know, with social media to find these movements, these spaces, these ruptures, um, and to be able to build. So support, build, grow indigenous rage and agitation and provocations that are happening all over. Cause these front lines are everywhere, uh, in these struggles. And I, I think it's, it's profound. That's, to me, the way that we can sort of, um, I wouldn't say democratize, but break down what solidarity should mean, because it should mean action implication, and um, it should be meaningful and consensual. And somebody, somebody mentioned something uh, just in a little bit of a side chat that the logic, I, I, and I agree with this, the logic of the dams is not the logic of the dams of the beavers, right? Uh, it, it's not the, the and, and there's a difference between the logic of blockades too. But to me, it's like the logic that we're talking about with damming of power is the colonial logic that is trying to control the natural flow to um, uh, accumulate power uh, and to hold that power to benefit the the institutions that they're building. Um, And that's really the dynamic that's extraordinarily problematic and very dangerous with nonprofits, even if they have indigenous faces. And all the right language. Truly. Well, you know, it's funny that you mentioned uh, gatekeeping because there was actually a cis-hetero male that got into uh, an indigenous woman's face this past weekend. And he does represent Indian Collective. And he, with his finger in her face, was telling this person that they were a gatekeeper and so on and so forth. And it was it was very much noted that uh, Indian Collective is a very cis hetero male dominant space. I guess that's my my call out. <laughs> that's my call out. This whole show is a call out. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's my call out. I'm done. I'm finished. I'll just say. Awesome. I'll just say one last thing about like you know fuck Biden and all that um, is that. What we're hearing from, I keep getting messages, and I think a lot of us um, have been getting messages about people thinking that somehow the Biden administration actually stopped the border wall, and it didn't stop. You know, that they what they did was they haven't given more money, and so the companies that were constructing the wall still had money left over from the last administration, so they still have been continuing construction. And not everybody knows that, that, you know, construction has continued in some areas um, and that, you know, 
there's a lot of, I think, just misdirected like gratitude towards this new administration for not doing anything or for continuing to do the same violence to our people. And I think we really need to hold them as accountable um, in the sense of understanding that it's not any different, you know. Um, and I think like we've all kind of in our own spaces in our own ways said this, that there's not really any difference um, when it comes to some of these things from Biden to Trump or Obama or Bush or, you know, going down the line. There's still the colonial government. They still have been enacting violence on our land and people. So that's just one thing that I'd like to clarify and put out there for people who think that now the border isn't an issue anymore now that Biden is there, is that um, there is still construction. There is still, um, you know, now the, the Park Service wants to further desecrate um, Quito Bequito Spring and reduce it because so much water was pumped out to build the wall. So, you know, a lot of it may not necessarily be the same contractors who came into Autumn communities and brought COVID you know, onto the reservation while they were constructing the wall. But it's now uh, the Park Service, which is still a part of the state, which is still, um, you know, occupying land that was never ceded to them and keeping indigenous communities out of, you know, areas that we were living in, like the park. Um, and so, you know, if kids are still being detained, kids are still in cages, people are still being killed, you know, trying to cross. All of these issues that we have with the border um, are still there. You know, and so I don't think that there's been any change. Just want to share that. Well, can we just send a collective fuck you to Kamala Harris for saying don't come? Like, yes, the folks in Guatemala, really? right? Yeah, you know, so much to say about that. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know where to begin. Um, you know, she's a cop. That's all I gotta say. Oh, right. <laughs> um. Um, I, I want to give a shout out to, yeah, all of the blood fam, uh, black indigenous, Afro-indigenous and my Asian, you know, kin out there. Um, yeah, white supremacy is really buckling down hard and I think we need to look past politics of recognition and representation and really, really understand that they're imposing frameworks of thinking and solutions for us. And we have to be very, very critical on, on the solutions that they're, they're trying to grant to us and even the strategies of organization that have been presented to us, uh, so, you know, I, I just, like, I really want to echo the fact that, like, I, I don't want my people to be harmed or or, or killed or missing and murdered. Um, you know, these critiques are, are coming from a place of, like, of anger for and rage, but love for our people. Um, and there is, yeah, that I think... Um, in terms of my own personal shout outs and call outs or what have you, um, damn, like, uh, I just want to give a shout out to, you know, some of the most marginalized and quote unquote illegitimate, um, kind of identities and work that has been out there. Shout out to sex workers who have often 
been um, blamed for uh, the violence that they might experience at the hands of of men um, to the to you know the the women that were were shot up, massage parlor workers that were shot up. Um, to you know, one of the I know a, a woman who recently um, called out uh, her her own abuser um, online because he didn't follow through with, um, you know, openly stating to the world that like he had a problem with predatory behavior with women. Um, That person is a well-known quote unquote warrior within our communities. Um, His, he goes by Ome, uh, two Ravens and, um, you know, it's been about a year since the issue has been brought to people's attention or people close to him. It's been brought to to their attention, but it's been less than a year since uh, she called them out because she uh, she felt the need to to do that because um, it seemed like he he wasn't he wasn't really understanding the harm that he caused her. And a number of other uh, women that were have been involved uh, with him. And for me personally, why I'm saying this is because, like, you know, from the beginning, I I, I know both of them, the, the woman that was harmed and um, Ome. And I really just wanted, she came to me with this issue in trust. And um, I just really wanted to... Uh, try to resolve the issue between them because I've done transformative justice and mediation work in the past. It hasn't always been successful. It isn't, it's very emotionally draining labor. And I really wish other men in um, our spaces would pick up on that labor. I'm always talking about that, how like that labor needs to be decentralized. Um, But I've, you know, like, I, I'm very surprised at him and his closest comrades in the warrior jiu-jitsu program of Tongva Lands are uh, making, um, they made a men's circle podcast uh, recently and still giving him a platform, even though he hadn't uh, held himself accountable to the woman that he harmed. Um, I think this has really become un- unacceptable, um, uh, especially when... You know, he's he's making people, leading people to believe that there weren't attempts at trying to talk to him. And there were, I have receipts of that. There are other women I called uh, with him to have this conversation with him. And he, he evaded uh, every step until it, and that's what people don't see before call-outs happen. Uh, they just see the call-out and they're like, well, why didn't you talk to people directly? And it, there were attempts um, and people within his circles are trying to say that, I handled the issue poorly and I just want to, you know, be like, well, you know, I, 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 there needs to be, there needs to be more work and it shouldn't be, you know, some of the, like myself, like who's Afro-Indigenous, like black trans woman, two-spirit person that is like also a survivor having to deal with these issues. There should be more, more people that create models around themselves to confront issues of harm and abuse and predatory behavior. So yeah, that that's pretty much um, my uh, call out because I'm pissed off because people, you know, even with amongst within their direct community who have been for fires with them were like, you know, I, I, I saw him and 
he wasn't completely um, understanding of the harm that he caused. And, you know, it's more of a it's more of an issue for us of not wanting this harm to continue to happen. We don't want I'll do anything to make sure that the women and femmes that I'm working with are are safer uh, than outside of like in in spaces where we're, we're not you know, normally taken care of or we're not safe and we are going missing and murdered. And I just think that it's fascinating that, you know, people have all this talk about MMIWGT2ST without putting in the work in their interpersonal relationships to not foster the conditions for missing and murdered women to go uh, missing. Uh, So I just need more people to step up uh, because... We're tired, and I'm tired of seeing uh, women and femmes, uh, comrades being edged out and pushed out because of, like, I I personally feel uh, edged out and pushed out. And, again, this isn't a thing that I want. I want, I don't want anyone to experience harm. I don't hope my words, I don't hope my words escalate the situation. I just want the initial wishes of the person that was harmed to come to pass. And for him, you know, a so-called warrior... Uh, who has done a lot for community. I, I, I don't want to disregard that, but I want him to name, actually name the things that she wanted him to name. And that's where the disconnect was. He didn't name them. He didn't take any accountability. Um, so that's it. <laughs> I'm in complete support with, with you with that and in complete support of the victims. And um, and I really do hope this person does follow through completely. And some, some people may be asking, like, why is this why are you bringing it up here? And it's because our communities do overlap many, many, many times. Like we always oh, run into people okay. that know each other and know each other. And, you know, and it's like, especially with movement work, we're always crossing paths. So that's definitely one thing. But also with the hip hop community, it's a very large community and um, it's the same thing, you know. And so this person is involved with both spaces. And it's important that we do not invite these people into our territories or they don't feel welcomed into our territories until they complete their accountability work. And that's important. So thank you for speaking up. Thank you. I just also want to say that, you know, to say that somebody deserves to be disrespected because they do sex work is patriarchal and fucked up. Um, just because somebody, you know, it, it doesn't matter. Like you, you, anybody that has a job, you're just disrespecting your, yourself like by by selling your you're selling your labor you're still selling your body in order to make the colonizers currency and i just wanted to say that you know to say that one is honorable and one isn't it's just it's really uh it's really mind-blowingly colonial so just to also end with that too and just just stepping back to like holding men accountable uh, we are we do have a show that's going to be coming up or a couple of shows potentially um, digging into that issue as well. So I just want to put that out there and also full support. Um, and just to reinforce what Bearcat said is like um, a lot of folks are really familiar with and, and, and vigilant about security culture. We also have to include like addressing sexual and gender-based violence in our understanding of security culture and build in frameworks for transformative and restorative justice, accountability and responsibility. Because if we don't, um, we we fail to recognize how insecure, like oppressive behaviors and actions render our communities insecure, unsafe, and violatable. Um, and so with that, uh, we need to, I, and I, I, I articulate this a lot, 
But I assert that like indirect action in movement spaces, wherever we're organizing our community spaces, small scale, large scale, like embed those practices, those positions or disciplines and principles into your understandings or agreements into your understandings of what it means to have a secure culture, secure, um, you know, communities, because that's what mutuality, that's what mutual defense um, is definitely about. You know, I'm 100% with you all in terms of the, the accountability and transformative justice and, and creating that for our communities. Um, but I just wanted to add that uh, we are requesting that um, the federal government drop their charges against Hyachit Atom uh, water protectors who put their bodies on the line to protect uh, Kitabakita Springs and our sacred sites and um, stop the wall. And so uh, we will be putting together uh, something soon, a petition um, on social media uh, for folks to demand that those charges be dropped. And so we're asking for folks to support that. Awesome. Um, yeah, and I, I guess um, my shout outs and call outs, I'll just shout out to, you know, Bearcat for holding it down up there in the front lines and other, um, you know, frontline warriors, uh, protectors, defenders as well, um, who are autonomous, who still go into those spaces knowing the uh, nonprofit capitalist bourgeois fuckery that you have to contend with and liberal fuckery and policing, like from movements and our own people um, and our own elders sometimes um, and still holding it down. And making sure that we we show up for our relatives, the the which isn't just the people, but you know the spirits, uh, the the water, the other beings that can't necessarily speak for themselves. And so, I just wanted to just give a big shout out um, to all the frontline um, defenders and protectors um, who are autonomous. Again, radicals. Yeah, I I just want to like call out like more indigenous men to step up to engage in these conversations about gender, interpersonal and sexual violence and get into the fucking work and language of accountability and responsibility. Transformative and restorative justice aren't new concepts. They are our ways of being and relating to each other. And if we're going to talk about missing and murdered indigenous uh, women, girls, trans, two-spirit relatives, if we're going to talk about... Um, these issues in a meaningful way, we have to do that work. Um, and that's a challenge. That's a call out and a challenge um, because this should not be a new process. This should be something that we have already done, but we haven't. There's a legacy of violence embedded with AIM in many of these spaces and movements. You know, the fact that they didn't have the infrastructure to address many of these issues that were happening at Standing Rock, it wasn't a priority. We need to make sure that when we go into these movement spaces, we have that language already. We have that responsibility. This isn't a masculine posture. This isn't, you know, something to, to um, you know, say that, you know, we as men need to step up with these specific roles. It's to honor, respect, and recognize the harm that is being done with cis-heteropatriarchy and violence perpetuated by us and make sure that we're doing the right work to transform and be accountable and be responsible. If you're being called out like this, fucking listen, take that time to step back and stop what you're doing 
and be part, be open to process. Don't, don't be defensive. Don't shut down, but be open and let's find a way to have good conversations to bring our relations into that transformative space. Um, but be accountable and make sure that harm does not fucking happen because that's our first priority. Um, and that relates to the boarding school issues that we're facing as well with cycles of trauma and violence. Um, so I just wanted to throw that out there and I know we're, we're talking on a show about it, but just based upon what you shared at C, I just wanted to put that public service announcement out there again. And then, um, uh, I, I, I remember who I wanted to shout out to. I want to shout out to all of the people who keep the spirit of bash back and queer ultraviolence alive in this like corporate month designated for pride. <laughs> Like the two spirit relatives and all our fucking fierce, amazing, fabulous, joyful, claws out, fucking, you know, rabid relatives who are most vulnerable, who are suffering disproportionately, who not only see you, but want to uplift and fucking celebrate that fierceness, not just one, one month that's dominated by corporate fucking capitalist celebrations but all fucking year round so blessings and um beauty uh to you all uh in harmony as well so thank you so much amra bearcat etsy for being our guests on this show uh we are looking forward to getting more into production everybody's been super busy addressing frontline organizing and work amazing mutual indigenous mutual aid works that's still happening check out indigenous mutual aid.org for more information about what a lot of these folks are doing uh and obviously support and follow autumn anti-border collective um but again just a special thank you all for being here joining uh for the show we're looking forward to digging into the boarding school issues and also a lot more about um, the struggles that we're facing with gender-based violence, interpersonal violence in our communities for the next shows. So, ikiahat, and we look forward to connecting with, with y'all more. And you can find this broadcast on any of the usual podcast platforms or at indigenousaction.org, also part of the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network. Email us pics of burning cop cars, burning wagons, or churches. Uh, any questions or topics you'd like to hear us go clause out on at iainfo at protonmail.com. Thank you, ahead. <laughs>